According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth will come through the scriptures. Turn to Matthew chapter 11 this morning. Matthew chapter 11. We will spend some time in Matthew 11 and some time in Luke 7. This is now our third week to be dealing with this episode where Jesus encourages John the Baptist. Last week, we focused in mainly on his question, are you the expected one or should we look for another? Demonstrating that it's not necessarily a cowardly question or a, a question expressing fear or doubt or lack of faith on John's part. That's normally how it's taught. I wanted to present an alternative way of looking at it, a, a way in which we bring all of the scriptures to bear and examine the possibility that maybe he's not weak in faith at this moment. Maybe it is a legitimate question. And uh, under what circumstances is it a legitimate question? In uh, which case we find a greater maturity level on John's part than uh, we often give him credit for. This morning we're going to move on beyond the question itself and deal with uh, the Lord and as he turns to address the uh, the crowds there. And so we'll pick it up and hopefully be able to wrap it up here this hour. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to assure that we are filled with the Spirit, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful for the truth of your word, thankful for your faithfulness in our lives day by day, asking that you might set aside distractions, asking that you would guide us in the truth, praying, Father, that there would be no hindrance to the word of God as it goes forth this morning. Pray that no uh, amount of humanity involved in this process would in any way detract from the glory that is the living and abiding word of God. And Father, whatever other personality quirks may come up on the part of the speaker or on the part of the hearer or some friction between the two. We pray that uh, humility before the Word of God would allow for the Word of God to be exalted and magnified, for our Savior to be exalted and magnified, and for you to be well pleased in all things. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, let me get a uh, slideshow up and running here. To make sure that that's in the right place, Matthew chapter 11. We are ready now for main point six in the outline. And so I'll just zip on down here. The Lord's examination of the crowds concerning John. We read about it starting in verse 7. This is after the departure of the messengers, the engeloi, angels. We don't believe they were actually angels. We believe they were human being messengers. Standard way to understand the term angelos. Some people really have a problem in associating human beings with the term angelos. Well, if it's a messenger, it's a messenger. We have it in similar circumstance here as we have it in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, 7 messengers to the seven churches and those are the pastor teacher messengers and i don't really have any struggle with that some people though make a huge scandal out of the whole process we'll just let it go john the baptist isn't dispatching angels to go check with the lord to see what's going on he's dispatch he's uh dispatching messengers they are disciples and they are messengers in any event they head back to john as these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? 
Question number one, a reed shaken by the wind. But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. There's opportunity number two. It's almost like a game show here. (laughs) Do you want door number one, door number two, or door number three? What was it you were going out there? Why were you flocking to uh, this man and uh, and his message? Because you clearly weren't listening to his message. Why were you even showing up? And then the third question, or he, he answers, a man dressed in soft clothing. Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. Really mocking that speculation. He clearly wasn't dressed like a king and wasn't dressed like he belonged in the king's palace. Why were you even out there listening to him? What did you go out to see? A prophet? Now they're on to something, but they don't even know half the story. He says, yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. We'll have to deal with that. What does it mean to be more than a prophet? What were the prophets? What was their function in the Old Testament? We'll uh, discuss that here briefly this morning. This is one about whom it is written. Behold, this is the one about whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Stop to consider all of the people that were predicted in the Old Testament that would have then a future fulfillment. It's not a very long list. Of course, the most dominant of which is Jesus Christ. Yeah, we've got hundreds of prophecies with respect to Jesus Christ, with respect to his first advent, with respect to his second advent. And obviously he is the center, uh, the, the center of the Father's plan. He's the celebrity of the ages. He's the focal point of Scripture. But beyond Jesus Christ, who else is predicted that he is going to come? A promised coming one, see, beyond Christ. All right? It's a small select group of people. And... Uh, Elijah being one, and we'll, we'll reference that. We'll show how John could have been the Elijah that was promised. Uh, the Elijah that was promised is still yet coming. He'll have a second advent fulfillment, and that will be the literal Elijah who uh, is indeed coming. But John the Baptist was also a promised one. And uh, the Isaiah citation here, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you. And we will, uh, we will examine that as well. All right, these three questions. The Lord asked the crowd three questions concerning John in parallel with the three questions that the Pharisees' messengers had when they interrogated John. And we covered this last week. Is that right? This is review? Okay. We went back to John chapter 1, verses 19 through 25. We won't go back to there again this morning. But when they sent their minions to interview him and find out what was going on, and then they themselves showed up. And you start to wonder how dissatisfied were they with the answers that those, uh, that those lackeys were coming back with, see. So they went out personally to see what was going on, which must have been a huge struggle for them. As, as, I mean, you realize how appearances meant so much to these guys. They would never eat in a tax collector's house. They were absolutely livid that, that Jesus let the, the sinful woman touch his feet. They were just really, really... Uh, wrapped up in under legalism. They were wrapped up in how the appearances of things actually were. So to go out to the River Jordan and to go out with all of the, the commoners, you know, the riffraff and the basic, ordinary, normal people, that was really beneath them. And yet they went out there anyway. And it's, that itself is really quite extraordinary. And so he's asking, why were you out there? What did you go out there to see? What, what was it that, that compelled you to go see what was going on? So now the Lord has three questions for them, and it does make for an interesting parallel. It also makes for an interesting parallel with respect to the question that will then be put to his disciples. Who do you think that I am? These questions can form a methodology for evangelism. They can form a methodology for apologetics. 
that can form a method by which you and I can be equipped to testify as, as children of light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. If uh, you've got a coworker that's all excited about this Da Vinci Code thing, for example, you can stop and ask him, well, what do you think the Bible even is in the first place? Okay? Because if they're all wrapped up in this Da Vinci Code thing, then their estimation of what the Bible even is, is off track. And we have an opportunity to stop and reorient to what the Bible actually is. It's not a human document. It's not a gathering of traditions that were collected together by the church over the years and, and all the rest of that. No such thing. See? And, uh, you know, it's, it's, if, if there was some forgery involved, it's, it's pretty remarkable because, uh, the, I mean, even just the archaeological discoveries of the 20th century alone ought to be enough to dispel all those pathetic rumors. I mean, the, here's the Dead Scrolls, which are four centuries, seven centuries before the Roman church. How did they get involved in that? <laughs> you know, when it comes right down to it, uh, I think the Dead Sea Scrolls go more to answer uh, so many of these ridiculous conspiracy theories and so forth because it uh, it backdates the Old Testament so well in, in terms of at least the, the manuscript traditions. So he has this question for him. Now, over just five chapters over in chapter 16, it becomes key. And he has this question. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And I find it remarkable, the answers. They say, some say, you're John the Baptist. <laughs> wow. I guess those were the people that actually didn't see them side by side at any time, <laughs> right? That they were at the same place at the same time, side by side, and, and, uh, and all of that. Well, some people say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Why would they say that? They had the same question about John the Baptist. Are you Elijah? Well, because Elijah was promised to be coming. Elijah never died. Elijah was caught up in the fiery chariot. Elijah was arguably the, the greatest prophet that Israel had during their kingdom years. Uh, and he was promised to come back. So maybe that's what's going on here. And still others say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So they're confused. They're confused. He's been in the ministry for two years and they're confused as to who he is. All right. Not surprising if they're approaching it on a carnality basis or they're approaching it on the natural man basis. Can the things of God be appraised by uh, the natural mind? No, they must be spiritually appraised. We know how that works. So then he says to them, but who do you say that I am? And with Peter's uh, shining moment here, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But now notice, how did Peter learn that? It was revealed to him. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. See, the nature of the Word of God, the nature of spiritual truth being made clear by God Himself to His children is so important. We're, we're accustomed to that, to the, uh, to the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit who guides us in the truth. That's the gift from the Father to us. And this statement here about how the Father revealed it to, uh, to Peter, they didn't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They didn't have the, uh, the grace apparatus for perception that, that were accustomed to it. They were Old Testament saints. Forget for the moment we're reading in Matthew here, okay? <laughs> they are Old Testament believers. Church doesn't start till Acts chapter 2. So these stories are recorded for us in the New Testament, but the events that are taking place are taking place in the Old Testament. We've said that in the past, but I think it's worth saying occasionally here and there just by way of reminder. 
So Peter and all these other guys, these disciples, they are Old Testament believers. There is no New Testament yet at the time these things are taking place. When uh, Jesus asks the question, when Peter gives the answer, when this message comes forth, they are still functioning under Israel's stewardship in the Old Testament. There's no universal indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They don't even have the Holy Spirit yet. And so how did these things get revealed to them? Well, it was the Father who revealed it to them. So we have these questions, and they're they're useful questions for us to be able to ask in... uh, you know, who, who, who is John? Who do you think John is? Why do you think John's even in the ministry? Who is Jesus? Who do you think he is? What's he doing here? Why is he going to this cross? And they're questions that we can ask. We can use them as evangelism tools. If you have somebody who says, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, we'll stop and ask them, you know, well, what do you mean by that? Why did Jesus die on the cross? Oh, well, you know, politics. He, uh, he ran afoul of the religious leaders. And so, of course, you know, that's how church fights happen and and they just view it as, as, a, as a power struggle. They view it as just one more instance of how you know, violent and closed-minded Christians can be and, and things like that. No, why did he die on the cross? Because we were a lost and dying world and we needed that kinsman redeemer. If they can't explain that to you, they may profess to be Christians, but are they really? All right. Let's deal with Matthew's recorded detail. Matthew's recorded detail under point seven. It's the content of Matthew chapter 11, verses 12 through 15. If you put the Matthew 11 account and the Luke 7 account up side by side, you will note that Luke doesn't record this. Matthew does. And so it's unique to Matthew. Matthew's recorded detail, unique to Matthew in this event. You will note, however, that Luke does record in another event Something similar, Luke chapter 16 and verse 16. Before I read that, though, let's just read verses 12 through 15 here. Matthew, and the point is just simply main point seven, Matthew's recorded detail, Matthew 11, 12 through 15. So after he says, um, truly, truly, I uh, say to you, among those born among women, there is not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That's an extraordinary statement there and one that we'll talk about here in a moment. Verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you were willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. All right, there's... Five verses of material there are 12, 13, 14, 15, four verses of material there. Now, when we turn over to Luke chapter 16, it's not the parallel account. The parallel account to this is Luke 7, where uh, Jesus encourages John the Baptist and in the Galilean ministry, and he turns and he rebukes the crowd. In Luke 16, 16, we're in an entirely different setting. We are almost at the cross even. It's in the last Judean and Prean ministry. It's the last Judean and Prean ministry of Jesus, event number 24. And he's giving this message here about the unrighteous uh, steward and uh, how you cannot serve the two masters. Compilation of teachings here, actually, throughout this chapter. How in verse 14, the Pharisees were lovers of money. 
And they were listening to all these things and scoffing at him. <laughs> you know, some, you, some, pastor, some Bible teachers, you just can't please everybody. Even if you're sinless and perfect. <laughs> even if you're sinless and perfect and you're teaching that is sinless and perfect. I mean, has there ever been a greater Bible teacher on the face of the planet besides the word? Think about it. If you're trying to teach the word, who can do a better job at it than the word? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's teaching the word and here's the crowd scoffing at him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. And then in verse 16, he says, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Now, it's, it's identical or highly similar to what we read about just recently there in, in Matthew chapter 11. But it's a separate episode. So you see how this works? A lot of these messages that we're finding recorded in the Gospels were probably messages that were spoken again and again and again, many different times, at, at various different Bible classes, various different settings. You know, do you think the Sermon on the Mount was the only time that Jesus ever said, you know, blessed are the meek? He probably said that a number of different times on the Sermon on the Mount and several times afterwards in various cities when he traveled around and various times that he gave messages. So here at this episode, he is approaching the cross. This is almost a year after the other episode. And he says, uh, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. Now, that's similar to what we read already in, in Matthew 11, but it goes on. To say it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. All right. Anyway, there's a, uh, a uh, smorgasbord of messages that are recorded here in this chapter as the Lord gave a number of different messages at this time, as he gave the story of the rich man and Lazarus at this time. All right. So this is unique to Matthew in this event. But a portion of this is, is actually recorded in Luke in another event. wanted that to be clear as well. It is unique to Matthew in this event. Now, sub-point A. Jesus made a comment pertaining to current events. I don't know if people get mad when pastors or Bible teachers comment on current events. They say, oh, come on, get off of that. Just teach the Bible. All right. Jesus makes a comment pertaining to current events among God's stewards from the days of John the Baptist until now. From the days of John the Baptist until now. From the days of John the Baptist until now. He's talking about the conditions of ministry in which, uh, starting with the time when the baptizer made his first appearance and started proclaiming repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand to the point where Jesus appears, behold the Lamb of God who uh, takes away the sin of the world to his baptism, to his ministry, to everything since then. Basically from the start of our Life of Christ series. He's commenting pertaining to this event, to, this, to this, the conditions of this day. From the days of John the Baptist until now, references the dispensation of Israel, age of the incarnation. Now, this terminology you may not have had from other pastors, but I want you to get it clear. The dispensation of Israel. And we're familiar with that, right? The Jewish age. You've got dispensation of Gentiles, dispensation of Jews, dispensation of the church. Okay? Basic dispensationalism. But now these dispensations are broken down into ages. 
For instance, the dispensation of the church has the age of the apostles, age of the local church. Which one are we in? All right, there you go. No more apostles around anymore. That's right. Old apostles are done. The New Testament's completed. No more signs and wonders and miracles and all of that. Okay? The apostolic age was a unique age for the founding of the church, but it passed with the last living apostle, the apostle John. Now, the dispensation of Israel started with the call of Abraham, but it had a series of ages within it. It had the age of promise from Abraham to Moses. It had the age of law after Moses. See, were the, were the Jews before Moses, were they under the law? Well, of course not. There wasn't a law yet. The law hadn't been given yet. But after the law was given from Moses onward, now they're under law. All right. And it's co quite common to break down the age of promise and the age of law. That's pretty common. Schofield did that. Those in Schofield did that. Darby did that. All right. There is another age that's still yet future. We call that the age of tribulation. There is a final week remaining in Daniel's 70 week prophecy. We'll deal with that on Sunday mornings when we teach Daniel. There is a final age coming, an age of tribulation. Not everybody gives it an age, but uh, a lot do. I do. Many do. Okay. After the age of tribulation, it's going to be a, a kingdom age, an age of reign, an age of glory. See, not very many actually include that under Israel's stewardship. They usually make the millennium a separate stewardship and call that the dispensation of Christ. See, or you can think of it as Israel's stewardship, but it's the age of reign. It's the age of where Jesus Christ is reigning on the Davidic throne. You follow all that? I can draw pictures. Okay. Will pictures help? Um, that's slide 12. All right, let me remember that slide 12. Because um, I have a slideshow, actually, that has these things, don't I? Yeah. God the Father's grace, eternal plan. Here we are. And we're dealing with the dispensation of Israel. Age of promise, age of law. Now, I include an age of the incarnation as well. Not everybody does. All right. And it's defined by this very verse we're looking at this morning. From the days of John the Baptist until now. See, obviously, when when there is a change of circumstances, you have a, a particular age within a stewardship. The overall dispensation is the stewardship, Israel. And when Abraham was called, this new stewardship began. Now, that stewardship didn't change when Moses gave the law, right? It was still Israel's stewardship. It didn't change any. So the age of promise and the age of law, it's still Israel's stewardship. But the conditions are now different because now there's the law that's, that they're under as they fulfill their stewardship. Okay? I believe the incarnation is likewise presenting new conditions because something greater than the law is here. Something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than Solomon is here. The Lord of the Sabbath is here. See, all of these things that were a feature of the law, something greater than that is now here. And so the conditions then being unique, they're not just learning from shadow Christology and looking ahead to a coming Christ. They're looking at Christ. He's there. He's in their midst. 
And so from the days of John the Baptist until now, references the age of the incarnation. As I said, there is an age yet to come, an age of tribulation. An age where Israel is the steward because the church has gone after the rapture. Israel has once again returned to their stewardship. But there are unique conditions and circumstances associated with the tribulation that set it apart as a specific age within the dispensation of Israel. And then, as I mentioned, I prefer to think of the millennial kingdom as an age under Israel's stewardship. Because the nation of Israel will be having stewardship ministry responsibilities to the Gentile nations on planet Earth during that thousand year reign. Jesus Christ will be seated on the Davidic throne, certainly. But it does not change Israel's stewardship responsibilities in that thousand year kingdom. In any event, by charting it out this way, it places the cross at the very center of God's plan and program, not only for the human race, but also for Israel itself, as it was uh, salvation is from the Jews. It was a Jewish man, Jesus, the son of David, that died on that cross. So there you go. There's an outline of, of Israel's dispensation. Advantage of having the PowerPoint slide available and the uh, opportunity to do that. If you're listening on MP3, you're just kind of stuck out. All right, should have been in, should have been in class. All right, back now to what did I say? What slide 12? There we are. Jesus made a comment pertaining to current events among God's stewards from the days of John the Baptist until now, referencing the dispensation of Israel, the age of the incarnation. The unique circumstances in which he was ministering the word of God. The hardness of heart that he was observing in his audience. The intensified angelic conflict. We usually refer to the church age as the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. And it is. But the church hadn't been introduced yet by the time Jesus is here. In his day, it was the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. Which gets re-intensified for the church. Now, under subpoint B, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence. This might be a little awkward. It's a concept we wrestle with. Because we say, how can the kingdom of heaven suffer violence? How do we hurt the kingdom of heaven? Well, it's being done. And Christ says it's being done. Christ says how it's being done. Kingdom of heaven suffers violence. The, the vocabulary study we want to work on is, called, is the verb biazo. B-I-A-Z-O. Biazo. Biazo is a verb. It's a passive verb here because the kingdom of heaven is receiving the activity of the verb. It's being acted upon. It is, it is the object of the violence. It's not the subject of the violence. It's the violent men that are doing it. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence as a passive indicative, present passive indicative of the odds. present tense is continuous action in present time. So as the Lord has set the time frame from the days of John the Baptist, even until now, current event says right now, this is what's happening. This is what's happening. And he was observing it and he was teaching about it. See, 
When a Bible teacher observes what's happening in current events, what's happening in terms of positive volition to the Word of God or negative volition to the Word of God or uh, a, a hunger for teaching in a community, that's simply observing the conditions in which we're functioning. Now the verb biadzo is only used twice in the, uh, in the New Testament and we've seen the two passages already. Matthew eleven twelve and Luke sixteen sixteen. The two passages that reference what's happening today to the kingdom of heaven or what was happening in Jesus' day to the kingdom of heaven, I should say. I believe it's still happening today. I should tell you that. Um, there is a Septuagint use that I find rather interesting in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 24. In fact, there's three Septuagint uses that would be worth looking at. But before I comment on that, I was reminded by... Uh, a uh, passing thought here. Biadzo, number 971, the noun of bia is one of the power words that Glenn Carnegie was dealing with in the book of Hebrews. Speaking of the cosmic power, speaking of the wrong kind of power, speaking of the power of evil and darkness that that uh, is, is uh, controlling and violent the way that it is. So this is the verb of that noun that, uh, that Glenn Carnegie had given some information on. As I say, Matthew 11 and Luke 16, those are the only two New Testament uses. But we've got some interesting Septuagint uses that I think give some extra flavor. Exodus 19. Do you know what's happening in Exodus 19? When you think Exodus 19, what do you think? Yeah. Well, what do you think about Exodus 20? Ten Commandments. Yeah. So what happens in Exodus 19? Moses going up the mountain. Yeah. He's getting ready to get the Ten Commandments. It's a chapter right before he gets the Ten Commandments. And so what's he doing before he goes up the mountain? Telling the people, back off. Don't get too close. And uh, it says in verse 18, Now Mount Sinai was in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. And when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down, warn the people, so that they do not beadzo, so that they do not break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. Alright? So you have communicated there, maybe not the violence so much, but you certainly have through here the willfulness, the barging right in, the doing what you think you want to do to get what you think you need to have. Certainly has a rejection of any kind of authority attached to it. He told them to back off and there's a danger they might just barge on through anyway. Like a, uh, a party crasher, gate crasher, wedding crasher, whatever kind of crashers there are out there. You barge into a place you don't belong. So the use of it there. Then he says, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves. What priests are those? Yeah, we haven't been given a law yet. We haven't been told anything about Aaron and his sons and the Levitical priests and all that. Goodness gracious, why do we have priests there in verse 22? Where'd they come from? I just like being ornery, spotting things there that people sometimes don't think about. All right, so there's a use of Beonzo to break through. We have it again in verse... In Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 25 and verse 28, it's translated forces. 
and it's in the context of a, of a rape, of a sexual assault. The word there is beyazo. And the girl that's, that's uh, forced, that's raped, that has no, uh, she's not guilty. She's not subject to any kind of discipline. It's not her fault. She has no, uh, no shame and no uh, defilement there. He's guilty. The rapist is guilty. He has to be put to death. But she, uh, you know, had called out for help. There was no one to help. She's not guilty in the eyes of the law, in the eyes of God, or any other way. So you see how what a, what a violent, ugly word biazo is used there in a, in a sexual way for, to describe a sexual assault, to describe a rape. It's the same term that's used in, Exodus, in Esther chapter 7 and verse 8. You familiar with Esther? We're getting some uh, uh, background now in uh, Persian society by virtue of our Daniel study. But Esther chapter 7 and verse 8, the, uh, verse 7 says, The king arose in his anger from drinking wine and went into the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. Now when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking, uh, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Now he was just begging. He wasn't doing anything improper here, but that's not what the drunken, angry, unbelieving king thinks. <laughs> all right first of all you're an unbeliever you're a pagan and you're drunk and you're mad so when you come storming back in what are you going to think and so um returns from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine haman was falling on the couch where esther was then the king said will he even biazzo will he even assault the queen with me in the house and the word went out of the king's mouth and they covered haman's face so Haman was taken out and hung on the, uh, the spike, usually translated in gallows, hung on the spike that uh, was prepared for Mordecai, hung on his own spike. All right. So these uh, Septuagint uses kind of help us get a sense for what Beazo is. It's not a, uh, a pleasant word. And this is what's happening to the kingdom of heaven presently in Jesus' day. Say, so, well, how does that happen? How do I affect heaven? Not affecting heaven, affecting the kingdom of heaven. Big difference. Well, what is the kingdom of heaven? We'll talk about it. All right. Secondly, violent men take it by force. This is describing, this is the explanation describing how the kingdom of heaven is suffering violence. Now, the kingdom of heaven is suffering violence. This is describing the how. Violent men. Biastai. I didn't give you a Strong's number for it, but it's a, it's a noun form of the verb we just looked at. Biastai. Somebody who biazos is a biastes. And in the plural, a biastes is biastai. So violent men. Those who biazo. The biazoers. Right? Somebody who teaches as a teacher. Somebody who farms as a farmer. Somebody who biazos is a biazoer, <laughs> is a violent man, is a biastes, or the plural biastai. Violent men rapture it. Take it by force. Harpazo. Very same verb we have in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. 4.17, excuse me. To snatch or to grab, 
The Lord himself will descend with a shout with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be harpazoed. We're going to be snatched up. We're going to be snatched up. Like a raptor, like a, think about the birds, the raptors or the dinosaur, the velociraptors, and they just come swooping down and they snatch you up. That's why they're called raptors. comes from this verb. And we're going to be raptured, raptured, we're going to be snatched and grabbed. And that's what Jesus is saying is happening to the kingdom itself. All right, we'll explain that here in a moment. Because what is the kingdom? Is it a place? Can we affect heaven somehow? Is it a thing? Is it an organism? See, like the church. A body of believers in Christ is the church. How do you hurt the church? Spray paint the walls? Burn the place down? Oh, you're thinking about a building. How do you hurt the church? The church is a body. It's an organism. It's members. It's people. It's believers. How do you hurt the church? Hurt the people. Grab hold of them. All right, the verb is harpazo, to snatch, many, many times. Not only here in Matthew eleven twelve, we have it over in chapter 12 and verse 29. In fact, three times in Matthew here, chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13. Matthew twelve twenty nine. How can anyone enter the strong man's house and snatch, carry off his property? Unless he first binds the strong man, then he will plunder his house. Makes sense. Matthew thirteen nineteen. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. Say, the gospel message has gone forth. The person is an unbeliever, just sitting there by the roadside, not sinking in anywhere. The devil comes and snatches that away. So that's the term. John six fifteen. I don't remember John 6.15. I remember the John 10 references very well. John 6.15. Yeah, of course. He just fed the 5,000. What a great king. Let's make him king. He can feed us. And um, so Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and rapture him to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. They were going to come and snatch him, grab him, take him by force, make him their king. He wasn't all about that. He was about letting the Father present him the throne. John 10, verse 12, verse 28, verse 29. Is anyone going to snatch us out of the Father's hand? Is anyone going to snatch us out of the Son's hand? What a blessing passage that really communicates our eternal security because how in the world can we lose our salvation if we're held in the Father's hand? That's verses 28 and 29. Verse 12 of that chapter, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep. And then notice what happens. The wolf snatches them. 
So see, the, 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 the harpazo verb can be either a good thing or a bad thing, depending on who's doing the grabbing and what they're going to do after they grab you. <laughs> you know, the rapture is a good grabbing. God's grabbing us and taking us to heaven. But when the adversary is involved in the grabbing, it's not good. Because it grabs hold of a sheep. And it's not friendly things that a wolf does once it grabs hold of a sheep, is it? So understand when he says the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men grab it. You realize what's happening. The wolf is having his way with the sheep. Eternal security passages here. Um, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them, rapture them, harpazo them out of the father's hand. You realize that to lose your salvation, you or somebody else has to overcome double omnipotence. The father's omnipotence and the son's omnipotence. And that's, that's just inconceivable. If you really can't overcome double omnipotence, who needs to be saved in the first place? Go save yourself. Right? If you can overpower double omnipotence, you don't need a savior. If you think it through. Acts chapter 8, verse 39. What happens in Acts chapter 8? Chapter titles, folks. Chapter titles. Acts chapter 8. Philip. The, the Ethiopian eunuch, Acts chapter 8. And uh, Philip has his own personal rapture here. Not caught up to glory. But he has his own beam me up Scotty kind of moment. Gets done teaching Bible class, baptizes uh, the Ethiopian eunuch. And then uh, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. And the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. Now, when we're snatched up, we're going to be with the Lord in the air. And he's going to take us to heaven. We're not going to get snatched away to Azotus. Okay? A terrible place to go anyway. It's in Palestinian hands today, part of the West Bank. And who wants to be there? Or actually the uh, Gaza Strip, probably. Who wants to be there? All right, the rest of those, uh, Acts 23.10, we're familiar, we've got the rapture passage in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. You've got uh, Paul talking about how he was caught up to the third heaven in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 and 4. That's when he uh, received his thorn in the flesh, because when he came back to earth, the, the things of heaven that were revealed to him were just too glorious, and he'd be too prideful. So he was given the thorn in the flesh to keep from exalting himself. Jude 23, I have mercy on others, snatching them out of the fire. Revelation 12:5, how Israel, the woman, was snatched and preserved from the dragon who was attempting to kill her. There are 41 times it's used in the Septuagint, including <laughs> one that I just enjoy every time I read it. 2 Samuel 23:21. It's not that big a deal. It's not really an impressive story, but I really would have liked to have been there to see it. 2 Samuel 23:21. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man of Kabzeel, who had done mighty deeds. He killed uh, two sons of Ariel of Moab. He also went down and killed a lion in the middle of a pit on a snowy day. That must have been fun. 
Hope that's on video. I want to see that someday. He also killed an Egyptian, an impressive man. How'd he do it? Well, the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but he went down to him with a club and snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. <laughs> All right. Hate, hate when that happens. He snatched the spear from his own hand. He harpazoed. He harpazoed the spear from his own hand and killed him with his own spear. All right, this kind of gives us a sense for violent men take it by force. They're snatching, they're grabbing. They're taking people who should be serving the kingdom, who should be having their eyes on the kingdom, and they're having their way with them. They're turning them to other pursuits rather than the kingdom of heaven. John, point D. John is the conclusion to all the prophets and the law. In other words, he's the closing arguments. He's the conclusion. Every prophet had a message. The Christ is coming. The Christ is coming. The Christ is coming. The Christ is coming. Right? Like a broken record. <laughs> Same message. Whether you're talking about Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, doesn't matter. Malachi, Obadiah. The Christ is coming. The Christ is coming. The Christ is coming. The Christ is coming. The prophets were unanimous. The law was unanimous. You can even take this phrase, the law and the prophets, or the prophets and the law, as basically a summary of the entire Old Testament. Genesis to Malachi is pointing to Christ. But John the Baptist got to stand up and say, He's here. Not just He's coming. He's here, which is why he had no miracles. John the Baptist had no miracles. Didn't need him. Miracles were given to prophets to validate their message. John the Baptist didn't need any miracle. He produced the Christ. So there he is. So was he a prophet? Yes, but more than a prophet. More than a prophet. He was the forerunner. He was the one that who himself was a subject of prophecy. He was a coming one. Talk about a type of Christ prophesied in the Old Testament, miraculously born, filled with the Spirit while yet in his mother's womb, the greatest of those born among women. When you think of all the people who were ever a type of Christ, I struggle to find one that was more so than John the Baptist, say, in a lot of different ways. David, I think, was the greatest type of Christ as a king, as a prophet king. Moses was a great type of Christ as a prophet priest. There are other different types. Anyway, John the Baptist. John is the conclusion to all the prophets and the law. The last foretelling witness to the coming Christ. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. That's him. The Spirit of God descended as a dove. That's him. Heaven was opened. The Father testified, my, my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So who did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Verse 13 says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. That is up to and including John. John is the last. See, it's not before John, it's until John. Until, up to, and including John. He is the last, the conclusion, the final. And if you care to accept it, if you are willing to accept it, 
John himself is Elijah who was to come. The um, actions of the Pharisees and Sadducees, though, this is how we explain what this harpazo is all about. What, how are these violent men? And have you figured it out? It's the Pharisees and Sadducees that are the, the biasti. They are the violent men. They are the ones that are uh, the tyrants. The actions of the Pharisees and Sadducees were then inconsistent with the message of the prophets and the law. I mean, if, if, if the prophets and the law for 4,000 years have all been saying one clear, coherent message, and then these guys come along and reject all of that, where are they? The actions of the Pharisees and Sadducees were then inconsistent with the message of the prophets and the law. And we read about this when Christ pronounces these woes, Matthew chapter 23 and verse 13. There are eight woes, and the very first of which is the scribes and Pharisees. Added detail to tell us what this violence is all about, how they're taking it by force. So he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, the two-faced ones, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. (laughs) You know what the greatest hindrance to evangelism is? Religion. The greatest hindrance to the gospel. Religion. You can get a billion people convinced they're going to heaven, and where are they going? They're going to hell. Because you convinced them that the way to get to heaven is through the ritual of your church. And what have you just done? You just shut the door to the gospel. By grace through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter it yourselves. Remember, they're a brood of vipers, they're unbelievers. You do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Somebody that might possibly have uh, a willingness to at least give the gospel a hearing. And they're taking steps to make sure that message doesn't get out. See. Verse 14 is debatable. Verse 15, I mean, it's debatable in terms of of whether it belongs in the text. It's actually taken from a parallel text. Belongs in Luke, doesn't belong in Matthew. Verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. You You can't dispute their energy. They work hard. Think how many doors the Mormons knock on. How many doors the, the Jehovah's Witnesses knock on? How many miles do they put on their, uh, you know, they do a lot of shoe leather, don't they? Get out there and they're riding their bicycles and their white short sleeve shirts and neckties and whatever else, right? Knocking on doors. Do we work that hard? I get embarrassed sometimes how pathetic our effort is at getting the gospel out. You travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. Look how much effort they pour into that one. And then when he becomes one, you make him twice as much of son of hell as yourself. They're not getting into the kingdom of heaven. Who are they serving? And then the nature of this kind of controlling legalism, the nature of this, is that it only gets worse. Because if you're going to prove your worth in a legalistic system, what do you got to do? You got to do better, you got to do more than the guy that came before you. 
It's the only way you can shine under legalism. So the next generation gets even worse. The next generation gets even worse. As the centuries roll by, as the institutionalized religions get more entrenched in their evil, you see how it works. All right. Then we have to deal with a conditional statement. Subpoint E. A conditional statement. It's an if statement. If you are willing to accept it. If you are willing to accept it. Then John himself is the coming Elijah. Matthew 13. If. If you are willing to accept it, then John himself is the coming Elijah. We do this all the time. We, uh, we consider alternatives. We consider conditions. We consider outcomes. Um, if, uh, if Beverly would have been here this morning, a fresh pot of coffee would have been brewed and I would have gladly partaken of it. But since Beverly wasn't here this morning, a fresh pot of coffee was not brewed, but I found I could get one more cup out of the urn that was back there from Sunday morning. I had to kind of tip it over a bit and really get the dregs out of there and then microwave it to heat it up. Okay, so now there's two alternatives. There's two ifs. There's two conditions then. Great coffee, by the way. I should share it if you want some. The, um, but it's conditional. Now start to, start to envision, if you will, now some, some parallel universes where in one realm of reality... Uh, uh, Beverly had shown up and, and we had a fresh pot of coffee brewed. And then there's another universe, parallel reality, okay, where what happened happened, right? Okay? And you deal with these if-then statements. We do it all the time. We're always dealing in the world of if-then. See? We, uh, we understand that there's going to be circumstances possibly that are out of our control and Whatever else, uh, you know, Sharon thinks she's going to be home at a particular time, and uh, but it didn't happen. And uh, the afternoon was just crazy and chaos, and now we're running. It's getting close to Bible class, and and uh, so well, okay. Tell you what, um, uh, you know, I'll hit a drive-through or something on my way home. What do you want for dinner? It wasn't the original plan, but it's now what we've kind of fallen back on because the original plan just didn't happen. Okay. I'm seeing some nods of understanding like this. This has happened in other in other households. Okay. So when he says, if you care to accept it, if you are willing to accept it, then John himself is the coming Elijah. It's an if then statement. We have to stop to consider, Okay, if the if takes place, then results. But if the if doesn't take place, then there's a different result, isn't there? Say. And this is part of the glory of God's wisdom and the part of the glory of God's majesty and God's sovereignty is the fact that he, he puts a plan into effect 
And that plan allows for, for choices to be made along the way. But his plan is still not thwarted. And only a God could have put a plan like that into effect. The evidence for that is in the tribulation when God removes all restraint and he gives Satan total sovereignty over what's going to happen there in the tribulation and Satan's plan falls apart. <laughs> Satan exalts his antichrist. He puts in one world government, one world religion, all this economics, everything is going great. This great man of peace is sitting there, his, his counterfeit antichrist. And yet, a 200 million man army starts marching from the east. And Antichrist is furious. And he has to go forth to war. <laughs> Satan's plan's falling apart. Why? Because Satan doesn't have the omniscience and the glory and the majesty to put into effect a plan that can deal with human volition in the process. So Satan's plans all fall apart. God's plan never falls apart. No purpose of thine can be thwarted. What a glory. See, when Adam and Eve sinned, God wasn't up there saying, oh my, what do I do now? He had a plan prior to even the foundation of the world to deal with the consequences of negative volition. Jesus Christ is called the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. The plan of God for redemption was already put into effect before any created angel ever fell or any created human being ever fell. So we, we deal with this. Remember, we're looking at it with hindsight and we know that there's a second advent on the way. But what would have happened if they would have accepted it? What if they would have accepted John the Baptist's message? What if they would have accepted their Christ? Then he is the Elijah who was to come. He's the forerunner. He is the one crying in the wilderness. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He fulfilled all of that. And we'll just go from there. But because they're rejecting John the Baptist, they're rejecting the Christ, they're going to crucify their Christ, the kingdom of heaven is going to be taken away and, and that the uh, partial hardening will occur, the mystery of the church will then unfold and we end up with uh, the two advents the way we have it. Because of those circumstances now, Elijah is still on the way. The literal Elijah. Not just one coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. The literal Elijah will in fact come and fulfill what it is that Elijah was promised to do. Conditional statement. Conditional statement as it pertains to the acceptance of the kingdom. Finally, point F, Jesus' message will only be understood by those regenerate individuals who have spiritual ears. He who has an ear, let him hear. Jesus' message will only be understood by those regenerate individuals who have spiritual ears. Jesus' message will only be understood by those regenerate individuals who have spiritual ears. The vast majority of the crowd here, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, Without the ears to hear, are they going to hear any of this? It'll make no sense to them whatsoever. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's verse 15. Matthew 11:15 Should have had that on the slide. Matthew 11:15. All right, next week we will come back and under point 8 we'll give you Luke's recorded detail. 
from Luke 7, 29 and 30. And then under point nine, we'll give you the, uh, the never satisfied brats. If you don't have any, if you don't know what I'm talking about with never satisfied brats, then uh, you need to be here next week. We'll talk about it. Any questions? Yes, ma'am. From the days of John the Baptist until now. Okay, yeah, the question was asked, can I reread verse 12 with reference to the kingdom of heaven? From the days of John the Baptist until now, that is, with the ministry of the herald and the Christ, in the dispensation of Israel, age of the incarnation, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force meaning that the religious authorities of the day are not accepting the herald, not accepting the king. They are not willing to let go of, of their control. And, uh, and, in fact, they are working against it. They are working against it. They are damaging those who would otherwise enter into the kingdom of heaven. All right, great question. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for this study. Pray that we might have an understanding of these things that we've examined as we go forth and meditate upon it. We thank you for your grace eternal plan that cannot be thwarted no matter what decisions or uh, conditions that we come up with and our own choices we make. Father, I just praise your name for your matchless grace. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.